very sensitive topic that we're going to talk about today, so I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. But let me point this out to you. We're going verse by verse through Mark. We're not talking about this topic, which is marriage and divorce. Uh, specifically, Jesus gets asked a question about divorce, and he talks a lot about the meaning of marriage. And it's not because there's some divorce that's happening in our church that we need to address. It's not because of something in culture. It's not because NC State lost to Florida State last night. It's not because of the election. We're going verse by verse through this book, but I realize this is a sensitive thing that probably touches everybody's life here, whether you've been divorced or not. And so I'm just going to pray that God opens us up to what he has to say to us today and that he would, uh, just like Adam, who was leading us in worship today, Jared, uh, he would just transform us. And so let's just pray and go before God, humbly asking him to speak. Father, <clears throat> we come into your presence and first just acknowledge we're in your presence, in the presence of the Holy One, that you are king and that you control and govern uh, not only our country and who's the leader of our country, but you can change the hearts of a king just like you would shift the the rivers going in different directions. And God, we trust you to do that. And I pray that you do that in our hearts. I pray you'd change our thinking in ways that it's not biblical and, and conform our minds so that we'd think the thoughts of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to think things that are noble and pure and true and praiseworthy and point us to you, even as we talk about things that seem so of this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I remember I was eight years old and I came home from school and had dinner with my mom and my brother, and my dad wasn't there that night. I didn't think much of the fact that my dad wasn't there that night. My brother's seven years younger than me, so he was just a baby. And after we were done having dinner, my mom put my brother to bed, and then we went out on the couch, and we played a game called Tiddlywinks. Have you ever played Tiddlywinks before? Yeah, it's a little, we must have had the deluxe version, because a lot of Tiddlywinks I've seen is just a cup and some plastic pieces. It was a clown face Tiddlywinks that we had, and I was flipping little plastic pieces on the couch into the nose of the clown and the eyes of the clown and the mouth of the clown. And as we were doing that, my mom started talking to me about why my dad wasn't there for dinner that night, which as an eight-year-old, I didn't think a whole lot about that. But then she started to tell me that he had been coming home for dinner the last several nights, but then when I would go to bed, he would leave. And then she told me what no kid wants to hear from their parents, that she and my dad were getting a divorce. And I remember that night, laying in bed, and I can remember it very vividly. She and I were talking about it on the phone just yesterday as I was asking her what it, she was okay with me sharing. And as I was talking about it, I could picture still laying in bed that. I remember being angry and deciding I was going to get in a fight at school the next day. Didn't matter with who, didn't matter about what, I was just going to get in a fight. I remember feeling betrayed, and not even by the fact they were getting divorced. I hated the fact that they were pretending like everything was okay, even if it was for a few nights, and I didn't have a clue. How did they pull that one over on me? And then as an eight-year-old, you, you know how people think, as an eight-year-old, you think everything revolves around you, and so you wonder, what did I do wrong? How is this my fault? But here's the thing that was the most vivid, and is I've, I've never forgotten this part. I remember laying in bed that night, angry and crying, and consciously deciding to live by a lie. I've shared with you before, as your pastor, there's lies that we live by. There's things that we believe that change the way that we behave. And the first one that I can remember consciously deciding about was I decided no one can know there's something wrong. And I don't want anybody at school to know there's something wrong at my house because as a, you know, as a kid you think that means there's something wrong with you. And so I've got to keep them at a distance. I've got to put a guard up and I'll use whether it's sports or humor or whatever it is, small talk, to keep people from knowing what's really going on. Because people are dangerous, they will hurt you, they will betray you, and all those emotions come up. And it all goes back to my first and most personal encounter with the issue that we're talking about today, divorce. Divorce is an emotional topic. Many of you have been touched, if not everybody here, touched by the issue of divorce. Some of you, even more personal than me, you've been married and it's ended in a divorce. Others of you, you've had kids, grown kids that have gotten divorces. Some of you, siblings that have gotten divorces. Some of you, it's like my story, your parents were divorced. You've got close friends that are divorced. I'm, I would bet almost that everybody here, if not 99% of people, have been touched in an emotional and a personal way by this topic, by this issue of divorce. And so before we even dive in, I want you to know that I realize this can bring up a lot of emotions. Maybe the emotions like they do for me, deception and betrayal and anger and pain. And maybe there are other ones. Maybe you've got loneliness and abandonment. They're all sad. They're all the kind of emotions that if we just got to pick, we'd never want to experience again. But they're part of this life. And I just want you to know that I realize that this is a, an emotionally charged topic, and so did Jesus when he talked about it. 
And what we're going to see is that Jesus talks about it as some people question him about it in Mark chapter 10. And so if you brought a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me to Mark chapter 10. And we put the verses up on the screen, but I just want to encourage you, if if you have a copy, you can always look at the context of what's being said in a passage. And so if you don't have a copy, we put some back by the back door there by our ushers. Uh, You can go ahead and get up and grab one if you want. But what's happening here in Mark chapter 10, it's really interesting that Jesus puts this here, that Mark puts this here, because you've got to ask yourself the question, why this? Considering what's happening in the book of Mark. This isn't a break from our series and Mark, which is talking about what it is that Jesus is the Christ and what it means to follow him. And so the beginning of Mark, remember the whole thing was about who is this Jesus? This Jesus that's stronger, this Jesus that loves without limits, this Jesus that does these miracles, this Jesus that confronts the religious hypocrisy of the day. And we see all that stuff, and then Jesus asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ. And then in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, there's a distinct transition where we're no longer just seeing who Jesus is. Now we're talking about what it means to follow him. That section goes from Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 all the way to Mark chapter 10 and verse 52. It's all about what it means to follow Jesus. And here he talks about the topic of divorce. Like of all the things you're going to talk about, this actually hits. There's only so many verses between Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 and Mark chapter 10 and verse 52. And this makes the list? Was it because the apostles were getting divorced? No. Why does this happen? And what you see is that Jesus is being, he's not in a pastoral counseling moment here. This isn't some young couple that comes to him and they're struggling in their marriage and they're trying to decide whether or not it's okay to get divorced. He's not giving pastoral counsel. These aren't people that have been divorced and now they're remarried and now they're trying to figure out what should I do, was it wrong, and how do, what do I do moving forward? That's not what's happening. There are people here that realize this is an emotionally charged topic They're trying to corner Jesus because they want him killed. At the very least, they want him to say something that will get at least half of this crowd to stop listening to it. So realize that Jesus doesn't say everything there is to say about marriage and divorce in this passage, nor will I in this sermon. And realize, too, that he's not counseling people here. But he is talking to them. He chooses to take this question, this highly emotional question, this very... It potentially could kill him question, although he knows the father's got control over that and when he's going to die. But from, from a human perspective, looks like he could die from answering this question. And he uses it then to teach his disciples what it looks like to follow him in the context of marriage. Look at it. Jesus was in a house with his disciples. He just talked to them about radically dealing with their sin and being salt. And then it says in chapter 10 and verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them, hey, there's thousands of people. I'll start teaching. And so that's his custom. That's what he does. He starts teaching these people. But some Pharisees, which we've met the Pharisees before, we know they're opponents of Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 3, we saw they were watching him in the synagogue on a Sabbath just to see if he would do a miracle. Because if he did a miracle, then he did work, and he violated their religious rules. And so therefore, he's a bad guy. But Jesus says in that situation, knowing their hearts, He says, hey, by the way, can you guys tell me, is it wrong to do evil or to do good on the Sabbath? (laughs) And they said exactly what you said. Nothing. They were quiet. And Jesus got angry. He was angry at their stubborn hearts. And he heals a guy. And then in Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, then they decided they were going to try and kill Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. And so here we see them again. They still want to kill Jesus. Look at what verse 2 says. Some Pharisees came and They're not seeking counsel in their own marriages. They're trying to trap Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which is an odd question, by the way, because it was accepted in that time, even by the Jewish rabbis, divorce is lawful. Their debate was about what are the grounds for divorce. It wasn't about whether divorce was lawful. So it's a weird question. Then Jesus asked a question back, verse 3. What did Moses command you? He replied, And they said, Moses permitted, oh, so Moses didn't command anything. He didn't command divorce in any situation. But Moses permitted, allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then Jesus begins to speak again. It's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, it's because you have sinful people in a sinful world. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And we'll go through verse 12, but we'll stop right there for right now. Think about what's happened here. So Jesus is teaching. These guys come. They're against him. They're not coming for counsel. 
They're not coming because they want some insights, some guidance in their own lives. They're trying to trap Jesus. Verse 2, they're testing Jesus. Jesus realizes this. This isn't a genuine question that's being asked of him. They, this is not, they feel like they've already settled in their mind whether or not divorce is allowable. In fact, they've already heard Jesus teach about this. They already know his view. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this and he says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the Pharisees taught. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. They already know that's his view. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say that in a controversial situation. It's specific to the location that he's in, to the people that he's teaching to. This is not a genuine question. But what Jesus does in this passage is he doesn't fall into their trap. Instead, what he does is he uses this as an opportunity to teach. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in the marriage context? And you think about our context and all the radical teaching that Jesus has given. He said, if anyone, anybody, wants to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's radical teaching. Not just, hey, call on my name, go to church every once in a while, you'll be good, be nicer than your neighbor, everything will be fine, we'll work it all out in heaven, don't worry about it. He says, if you want to gain eternal life, you've got to lose your life here to gain eternal life, to gain what is better. If you want to be great, you've got to become last. You've got to become the servant of all. All radical teaching. You want to deal with sin in your life? Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your feet. Do you think that when Jesus gets asked about marriage, he's going to say, just do whatever you think's best. Just, you're the captain of your own ship. Just kind of figure it out, and if it doesn't work out, we'll try something else, and it's all good. Jesus never says it's all good, by the way. (laughs) I don't think. No, he's going to give a radical teaching about marriage, too. Because that's what it is to follow him. It's it's radical. And what Jesus does here, he's questioned about divorce, but what he actually talks about is the meaning of marriage, what it means to be married. And we see from what he teaches in in this passage of Scripture, and he goes back to some verses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, is that he shows us at least three things that it means to be married. The first thing that means, it means ministry, that marriage means ministry. And what Jesus does is he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 in that, but how does he even get to that? It's kind of odd. You go back to the passage and read verse 1 again, and you look at it, and if you're honest, I don't know what your geographical knowledge is, but I'll tell you, if I'm honest, when I read passages like this, and I see that the verse 1 says he was in Judea, and he crossed the Jordan, I usually think to myself, like in my devotional reading, just I want God to speak to my heart, and like you guys, I'm sure read the Bible like that. I usually think, yeah, he went to that place, and he went to that place, and what's he going to do? Like, where's the action? And it seems irrelevant, but it's really relevant in this passage. Because what's being told here is that Jesus is in the territory of Herod Antipas. And if that doesn't ring a bell to you, he was mentioned earlier in the book of Mark. And what happened was he had an adulterous, unbiblical remarriage. And he got called out for it by a teacher named John the Baptist. John the Baptist had ended up being on a platter because of that teaching. That's what the hope is of the Pharisees as they speak to Jesus in this passage. Where he's located, they probably hope that he would end up getting his head chopped off. He'd get Herod mad because they already know what his teaching is from Matthew chapter 5. And the question they ask is interesting. They ask the fact, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Because it was just accepted. No one was having that debate. It was just accepted that it is lawful. The debate they had at that time was what are the grounds for divorce? And they're generally speaking, there were two schools of thought. One was more conservative, one was very liberal. The the, the conservative one is the school of Shammai. The school of Shammai said that you could divorce your wife, a husband, now wives weren't allowed to divorce their husbands, a husband could divorce their wife for unfaithfulness, which a lot of people today say that means adultery, which I think is really weird because in the Old Testament, if someone committed adultery, they got killed. Who cares about divorce if they're dead? So the debate was about what does unfaithfulness and indecency even mean? The school of Hillel, the more liberal school, taught that you could divorce your wife for any and every reason. If she showed too much ankle in culture, (laughs) she's out, you're done, you can move on. 
If she burned the toast, if she made you angry, if you met somebody else and you decided to upgrade, if she said something about your parents that you didn't like, whatever the situation, you can give, but you have to give her a certificate of divorce. That was the stipulation. It's based on an interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. Now, if you want to read more about all of that, verses 1 through 4 will give you a more complete picture. But in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, it says this, and I believe we have that verse that we'll put up on the screen. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, and this next phrase is what they argued about, something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And so what happened there was that Moses never commanded divorce. He acknowledged it was a reality between two sinful people in a sinful world that it does happen, and he gave a stipulation to protect the woman. He was elevating women who were treated like property, like objects then, They're elevating their position and giving them some protection that she's now free to remarry. And if you keep reading through Deuteronomy chapter 24, you'll see the stipulations on some of the stipulations on remarriage in that situation. But he never commanded marriage. So I love what Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 3 when he says back to them, and this is biblical wisdom just for, this isn't just about marriage and divorce. This is anything in life, like big decisions. It's a huge decision to decide whether to get married and who to marry. Huge decision to decide whether to get divorced. And what Jesus says here is so significant. In verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you? Which is ironic considering he's talking to the Pharisees, who are the guys that everybody went to to see what did the Bible teach. And when Jesus says, what did Moses command you? He's essentially saying, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Not what does Shammai say? Not what does Hillel say? Not, I'm not afraid of Herod. I don't worry about, what does God actually say about this? which is a great question for us to be asking. But let's be honest about the time that we live in. People aren't asking the question about divorce now either. It's just accepted. We've moved on. We've graduated from the conversation about whether divorce and whether remarriage is biblical, not biblical. We are now at a place where we're redefining marriage. We get to decide now, we think, uh, whether or not two men can get married to each other, two women can get married to each other. Eventually we'll talk about polygamy. Some, it'll probably go bad, bestiality. Like where It's going to end up bad. And the argument is, well, what is this? What are the people that I like? The people that blog? The people that say this? What do they think? What do they think? This is a great question. What does God actually say? So the, the thing that's on the internet right now, popular blogger and author, Jen Hatmaker, saying that a marriage between two men, two women, can be a holy institution. Oh, things go crazy. She gets kicked out of Lifeway Bookstore, all that kind of stuff. But then her husband comes out and says, we've studied this. We've studied the Hebrew, and we've stududied the Greek, and we've looked at all the verses, and we've read the commentaries, and we've read three books about people that are for same-sex marriage, and three books that are against same-sex marriage, and we believe that God's dream for marriage is two individuals and a loving, committed relationship, growing and loving each other like Christ loves the church, which, like, sounds good. Sounds compassionate, sounds loving, sounds caring, sounds biblical. The problem is, it's not loving because it's not biblical. God's actually clear about this one. And it's in the passage, you just got to, what does the Bible say? And you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, when God, who created marriage, started it, he says, between one man and one woman, for this reason, a man, you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to know that a man is a man, will leave his mother and father. Who's his mother and father? He's talking about Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Who's Adam's mom? He didn't have a mom. What God's doing is instituting Lifelong principles, not just for Adam and Eve, for all marriages, for all time. Leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one. So what does the Bible say? What Jesus says to them in verse 3 is, what did Moses command you? They did know what the Bible said, and they have to acknowledge in no situation did God command divorce. But he did allow it. And they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, that passage I read to you. He permitted a man to write it. He gave provision for the woman because in a sinful situation between two sinful people in a sinful world, what God was doing is not allowing to get even worse. He was protecting the woman. He said, you, gotta, you can't just leave, man. You've got to give her a certificate so she's free to remarry. And then why did he do that? Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard, because of your sinfulness. He wrote this law. And then he goes back and he says, but at the beginning, let me tell you what marriage was meant to be. You ask about divorce, but let me tell you what marriage is meant to be. But at the beginning of creation, Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female. Then Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. 
And so he goes back to Genesis, back before Deuteronomy, back before the fall, back at the very beginning when there's just two people, and he institutes marriage, and he says there's a reason for it. What's the, what's the reason for marriage? Well, there are a lot of reasons for marriage. Some of you might be surprised to know that the audience that he's talking to here in the, in the very beginning, a lot of them married not because of romance. It wasn't even thought that it was about love. It was for financial stability. You know, the husband would get the dowry, there'd be a better relate, whatever the, you know, two poor families would marry, and at least there are two of them, or you know, marry in, whatever the whole deal was, sometimes for political expedience. This idea of like Prince Charming and Cinderella, that wasn't even on their maps. Okay, so most people that will come to me and say, hey, would you marry us? And I say, why are you getting married? They go, because we're in love. And they're like expecting a high five. I'm like, that's not the reason. What's the reason? Because it says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, there's a reason for this reason. But what's the reason? In that context, you look at it and go, it's not good for man to be alone. But let me tell you what, the reason is not so you won't be lonely. It's bigger than that. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's talking about singleness, and some people are, have a gift of singleness, and they should remain single. But if you burn with lust, it's better that you marry. But the reason for marriage is not to fulfill your lustful desires. And, and, and you go through the Bible, and you see it's not, you procreate. There's kids that come, it's a glorious thing, that's good, but your reason for marriage isn't procreation. What's the reason? And you see it's mentioned in Genesis 2 and verse 24, and then Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5, and he says it in Matthew chapter 19, and he says it here in Mark chapter 10. He quotes Genesis 2, 24, for this reason. For, but we don't ever get told what the reason is until after the cross of Christ. After the cross of Christ in the book of Ephesians, after Jesus dies for our sins, no one takes his life, he lays it down. Self-sacrificially shows us a love that we've never seen before. He doesn't die for his sin, he dies for our sins. And we're unfaithful, and we keep running for him, and we keep committing spiritual adultery on him, but he keeps pursuing, keeps coming after. We've never seen a covenant-keeping kind of love like this before. After that happens, in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians 5, you start reading in verse 22, he starts talking about marriage. It's the most exhaustive passage you have in marriage in the Bible, where it talks about the role of the husband, the role of the wife. You get nine verses on that. And then verses 31 and 32, he says this, For this reason, hey, we've heard this before. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Yeah, that's Genesis 2.24. We've been hearing that for thousands of years. This is a profound mystery. I know. No one's told us what it means for thousands of years. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. What? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we're supposed to like fall into this emotional feeling called love, and then you say like romantic things like, you complete me. And then we do that. We like do this thing. And then, or, or, or you grow up as a little girl and you, you always want to dress up like a princess and you find out there's this day that we actually do in our culture where you dress up like a princess and your Prince Charming's there and we spend a bunch of money on a party and then you cruise away into the sunset. That's, isn't that what it is? Or to fulfill your lust or to bring you some kind of personal fulfillment or because of love or because of procreation or because of your loneliness to prove that you can make a commitment or you said some nice things and you got a really smart person to make a dumb decision. You just decide to roll with it. We come up with all these reasons and then we get this bomb dropped on us in Ephesians chapter 5. Hey, it's not even about you. By the way, disciples of Christ, we talked about this last week, that we don't even, your life isn't about you, so how foolish to think your marriage is about you. It's not for your fulfillment, it's not for your sexual desires, it's not for, it's not, your marriage isn't fulfilling you, and so you want, okay, it wasn't designed to fulfill you. We're not able to have kids, so I gotta go find another, that's not the point. But we're not in love anymore. I'm not saying love's not important, but what's the reason your marriage is designed to exalt Christ's self-sacrificing, covenant-keeping love. Amen. Now, let me be honest with you, though. When I first saw my wife, Shanna, I did not think to myself, I could really exalt Jesus with that girl. <laughs> Just not what I thought. <clears throat> I thought, she's cute. All you guys, stop looking over that way. I thought, she's cute. I want to get to know her more. And then we get to know each other more, and you fall into this emotional state that we call love, and I think, hey, do we think we could work this out? Do you think we could live together, committed forever, and we're going to have to learn like conflict resolution, because someday we might actually have a fight, and we're going to have to figure out how to compromise and negotiate contracts with one another, and all these skills that we're going to need, and hopefully it all works out, and we stay together. And that's what I thought. That's what I thought love would be like. 
So I thought marriage was supposed to be like, just, as long as you stick together. Let me tell you something. This pastor is going to say that the divorce is wrong. Telling someone the divorce is wrong doesn't fix any marriage. In your marriage, some of you are in some difficult and bad marriages, and you're going to be encouraged by what I'm about to say. Some of you are going to be discouraged by what I'm about to say. It's not eternal. You read Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, if you want to look that up, but that's not for this message right now today. But it does have eternal significance because it's supposed to be a picture of Christ's love. His going to the husbands or to love their wives like Christ loved the church. His going to the self-sacrificial, not because, not because the church was awesome, by the way, not because the church was going to serve his needs. Not because Jesus had some mom issues he was trying to solve with the church. Not because he was lonely. Not because of some lustful desire he had. Not because of some fulfillment that he needed. He lays his life down self-sacrificially for the sake of the church. And then the church then submits to his leadership. But the church keeps being unfaithful and keeps doing its own thing. And it's every day, minute by minute, daily, that we're adulterating ourselves to false gods, to other things, to politics, to sports, to money, to fame, to whatever the stuff is, and he keeps coming after us. Luke chapter 15, go after the ring, go after the lamb, the prodigal son. He's got this love that just keeps this love, and that's what our, our marriages are supposed to be exalting, this Christ-like kind of love. And you look at that, and I think about this message. There's only so much time that we have this morning, and, and I could talk about it. It is an amazing thing, and while it's not for your fulfillment, it can be very fulfilling. And while it's not for the sake of you falling in love, love's a huge component of it. And it is glorious and it's enjoyable, but it's also really hard work. If you're gonna, when you do the hard work in marriage, you are demonstrating the kind of love that Jesus had for us. Because by the way, the cross wasn't fun. There's a reason why when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, God, if there's any other way, but guess what? There wasn't. But to the point of sweating drops of blood, there's got to be another way. There's no other way. So when Jesus looked at the cross, he didn't see fun. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, as followers of Jesus, what if we applied these principles of followers of Jesus to our marriage? Throw off everything that entangles you, all the sin, everything that hinders you from getting to Christ. Throw it all off. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy, oh, there was joy involved, set before him, endured. Wait a minute, endurance, that's tough work endured the cross. But many of us, when we look at our marriage, we don't want to do the hard work. I think of the irony of while I was typing this sermon. I was uh, Thursday night. I'm up in my office in the second story of our house. I'm typing. The air conditioning goes off in the second story of our house. Kids are sleeping. My wife's asleep. I'm typing away. And it's not that hot out. It's like we're past the 95 degrees outside, but it's starting to get stuffy in the house. And so I decide I'm going to go and try and fix it. Anybody who's laughing has been at our church for some time now. You know, this it's going to go poorly, right? And so I grab a flashlight. I put my flip-flops on. I go outside. I'm looking for the breaker. I decide to go in our crawl space. I shine the flashlight up on the wall looking for the breaker. I see a spider the size of my hand. I'm not a spider expert, but my thought is, nope. I'm not fixing it. Like, I'm not going to mess with that. I'm not getting killed. I care. I acknowledge there's a problem. I care enough to look into the problem. But it's not worth it. I'm not going, I'm not doing So I go upstairs and I keep typing. I turn the fan on and I just keep typing. <laughs> the problem is that's how some of us are with our marriages. We might realize they're not what God intended for them to be. And we might even look into the problem. Maybe we'll go to counseling because we go to counseling because we want to get that other person fixed, right? And then we realize we've got to deal with our own issues. And that's hard work. And we don't want to do that. Aren't you glad that when Jesus was going to the cross, he didn't look at the cross like I looked at that spider? No. Mm. I mean, I realize they have a sin problem. I realize they need to be reconciled to you, but I didn't commit any sins. And that's not easy. See, when you do the hard work in your marriage, you're exalting Christ. When you lay your life down for the sake of the other person in your marriage, you're exalting Christ. What's the reason? It's meant to be a ministry. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't for the sake of you. You live your whole life as for the fame of his name. So is your marriage. But love is a factor in this. And so how does this ministry happen? Well, it happens when people see the intimate kind of love that a married couple has. Because look at the next part of the Genesis chapter 2, 24 verse that's quoted in Mark chapter 10 and verse 7. For this reason, okay, we know there's a reason. Ephesians tells us what the reason is. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word united is an incredibly intimate word. 
New American Standard says joined. You're glued together. You're bonded. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two. It's not just two people living in a house trying to negotiate, trying to figure out conflict, trying to do all, trying just to make it. You're one. The two become one. They're no longer two, but they are one. What you have described there is the most intimate relationship that any humans can experience on this earth. More intimate moms than you carrying a child in your stomach for nine months that shares your DNA because God's plan for that child is they will leave and you cut the apron strings. But you're meant to be bonded together with your, something happens at that altar. Something happens when you consummate that marriage. And it's not just physical. It's not just sexual. It's not just spiritual. It's not just metaphorical. You become one in every way. The design is your mind, your will, your emotion, your spirit, physically. You're physically joined together. It's the most intimate relationship on earth. So a lot of people hear that but we don't have that intimacy. So how? How do, we, how do we get that kind of intimacy? And Genesis 2.24 doesn't tell us the how. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 7, it doesn't tell us the how. But what if we took the principles that we've already learned about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and we apply them to our marriage? Because here's a little secret. Marriage, for those of you who are married, is one of the primary places that God uses to sanctify you. It's in the context of that relationship. And it's one of the primary places where he puts his love on display through your life is in that relationship. So what if we took the stuff that we've already read in Mark chapter 8, verse 31? You could say a whole lot more. There are books and books, many of them good books, written about marriage and how to have intimacy. But just take what we've learned in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through Mark chapter 10 and say, what if I apply that to my marriage context? What would happen? So go back to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. The first thing that Jesus says after Peter says, you are the Christ, he says, let me tell you what it means to be the Christ. The Son of Man is going to have to be betrayed by the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. He must be killed. He will be murdered. Talking about himself. After three days, rise again. Why? It wasn't for his sin. It was for yours and for mine. Because we rebel against God. And he would rise from the dead, defeat death. Why? 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 So that we could be reconciled to the Father. It was a radical act for the sake of reconciliation. What if in our marriages we sought radical reconciliation? Would that not develop intimacy amongst us? Because I don't know if you talk to each other, but you're both sinful, and so stuff happens, and reconciliation is required. Now, let me say, I, I realize there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and reconciliation can take, a, it can take time, sometimes a long time. We're talking about restoring trust. We're talking about re- reuniting when, when the bonds have been broken. And I think, about, I think about people that have reconciled marriages that have had adultery happen. I've shared with you one time before some friends that I had in Dallas, Texas. Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs. You can see their story on I Am Second if you want more of the details. But uh, I remember when we first heard Cheryl tell their story of, of being broken up, divorced. She talked about how they met. She was a waitress. He, he came in, started hitting on her. They started dating. Uh, she was Catholic, knew about Jesus, knew that Jesus died on the cross, but didn't know what it was to have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he was a guy that grew up in the church and had prayed a prayer to trust Jesus when he was real young, but when he got to college, kind of went his own way and just living for himself. Self-gratification, self, selfish, self-centered person. But they're nice. They're friendly people and successful. And they met in Tennessee, got married, ended up moving out to California, and they were so successful. I don't know if you've seen HGTV shows or not, but houses in California are expensive. They had a house that had an ocean view. They had two cars, two beautiful twin daughters, had a great family, but Cheryl felt like something was still missing. She had a relationship at work that seemed innocent at first, got emotionally connected, ended up sleeping with this guy, committing adultery, having an affair. Didn't realize how connected that guy was to her. They moved to Dallas, Texas. The guy followed her. She ended up telling her husband she wanted a divorce. They get a divorce. Three months later, she places her faith in Jesus Christ. She's sitting at church and comes into a real relationship with Jesus, not just knowing facts about him dying on the cross. Six months later, she feels like God speaks to her heart and says, I want to put your marriage back together. So she goes back to Jeff and says, hey, I want to reconcile our marriage. And he says, you're crazy. Because at that point, he's learned about the affair. He realizes the things that he wasn't seeing in their marriage and that he wasn't happy in the marriage either. So she stated her plan. 
He said what he thought, and then she waited, and she prayed, and she pursued for five years. Jeff started going back to church. He started working with the youth group at this one church, and he, he shared with me, he said, the problem was I was discipling these kids, and I don't follow Jesus, but that wasn't true in my own life. And he talked about one Bible study that he was in where he said to the guys in the Bible study, he said, will you pray that God would provide a godly wife for me to marry? And the, and the leader, instead of just placating to Jeff and telling him what he wanted to hear, said, what if that woman is Cheryl, your ex-wife? And he said, he was ticked. Five years of waiting, they started to date one another. Seven years later, they got married. They reconciled. It took time, though. Reconciliation is difficult. Some of you, your issue is not adultery. Some of you, it is. Some of you, maybe your spouse had an emotional affair, and they, he doesn't talk to her anymore, and you threw the note away that you found or deleted the text or whatever. She's gone, but it's not gone. You seek reconciliation? So just let that be there. Deal. Work. It takes time. It's hard work. You may need a counselor. I'm not thinking everything's going to be solved here in a 30, 40-minute sermon. Some of you, it's not an emotional affair, it's not a physical affair. Some of you, life has just happened, and he's not, who you, it's not the same guy that swept you off your feet, and she's not the same gal that you married, and she had four kids, and you're mad because her body doesn't look the same. Seriously? <laughs> and sometimes it's just the schedule, and sometimes you just get irritated, and you're at a low level. It's like this, you're not, that's not the blowout fight, and we're not going to get divorced, but you're just living together like roommates. I saw I was reading through a book Paul David Tripp wrote, What Did You Expect? And he says, a lot of people aren't divorced, they're just unmarried. That's a, that's a marriage that lacks intimacy, is what he's talking about. Will you fight for the reconciliation that will bring that intimacy back? That's just, by the way, just the first verse in this section. <laughs> Keep going through here. And what if you applied the things that are said to a follower of Jesus Christ, to your, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me? What if we did that? That'd be radical in our marriages. What, you want a great marriage? If anyone wants to be great... And be first, you must be last, the servant of all. What if we were radical in our service to our spouse? I've yet to meet two people that are seeking out the best interest of the other person that lack intimacy. Like show me two people that are trying desperately to serve the other person and they lack intimacy. When my wife and I got married, she had inscribed in my wedding ring, uh, Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. She knew I'd need the reminder. So she wrote it in there. I don't think that's why you wrote it in there. She said no just now. We'll talk later. I think what she was saying was her intention was that we would both do that. I do need the reminder. But, but what if you did that? What if you're continually looking out for the best interest? Instead of trying to get negotiating is that we're both going to compromise a little bit and get our... What if, you, what if instead you were just putting them first? How can I help? What can I do for them? Do you know how much trust you build in a relationship when the other person knows that you're ultimately for them? And what, if, what if we did the stuff like we talked about last week? He says here to deal radically with sin. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your feet cause you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the hell maimed, enter heaven maimed and enter hell. What if we dealt radically with our sin amongst our, each other in our marriage context? Like confessed our sin to one another. Not confess the other person's sin to them, <laughs> which tends to be natural for us to do, and causes fights, by the way, not intimacy. But what if we confessed our own sin? And by the way, confession is not telling God what you've done. He knows and you know. He doesn't need a news update. Confession is that you see your sin the way that God sees your sin. And, and what is that? Well, it, it's a barrier between you guys having intimacy. It's the thing that's coming. It's what breaks fellowship. It's the thing that's stopping you from connecting with God in the way that you should be connecting with God. And so what if we did that with our spouses? What if we said, hey, there's this thing in my life, and maybe you just became aware of it. Maybe you've been doing it for 10 or 20 years. Hey, for 10 or 20 years, I've been putting you down. And I realize that hinders intimacy between us. I've been taking advantage of you. I've been manipulating you. I've been, and what that does is it actually hinders the intimacy that we have with each other my intention is to stop. And then what if spouses, we actually use the gospel as a lens to see our spouse? Because what does God the Father do with us? If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God sees you as the righteousness of Christ. What if we decided to see our spouses, even when they're not acting righteous, the way that the Father sees us as righteous? And a work in process that he's continuing to do. 
There's lots of radical things that we could do. What if we would just pray together? I remember I had some friends, we were serving, I was an intern at a church one time, and they had a prayer pastor. And the guy was so passionate about prayer, he didn't even get paid. But I remember he, he would try to minister to so many couples, and he shared a stat with me. I can't remember what the stat is, but the stat was couples that pray together, their likelihood of getting divorced drops dramatically. But most Christians don't even pray together. Now, unless you're trying to be fake, it's really hard to pray and not expose your own weaknesses. And if you've got somebody that you're trying to serve one another, and you, you realize that you've actually been bound together, that's intimacy, that you're bound together in your mind, in your emotion, in your will, in your spirit, in every way, and then you're pursuing that with one another, and you, pr- and you expose a weakness, you don't think they're going to help you in that? John MacArthur, I thought, said it well in this passage. He says, marriage involves two people unbreakably connected together, glued, that's our word, united, joint, and pursuing hard after each other to be united in mind, will, spirit, body, and emotion. And pursuing that, not that you all have it perfectly all the time, but going after mind, what, we both think different things and we're different people and that's right and none of, neither of you on your own can possibly reflect the glory of God because we are limited beings. We're bringing together there's something there but our mind should, the same mind as in Christ Jesus should be in us. Are we pursuing that mind like Anna when she was reading Romans chapter 12? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So are you starting to think like he talks about in verse 3, biblically together? As we're making decisions as a couple, are we going to the Bible? Husbands, you're to lead your wives in these things. It's radical. It's supposed to be a picture of ministry, a picture of intimacy, and a picture also of permanency. Look at the last part of Genesis 2, 24. Verse 7, Mark chapter 10, verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, intimately connected with his wife. And two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. And then Jesus gives this comment in verse 9. Therefore, what God's joined together, let man not separate. And he was speaking here not to judges who would give a certificate of divorce. It was the husband that would give the certificate of divorce. Remember, he's not in a counseling situation. This isn't somebody that's been remarried. They're trying to figure out whether it's biblical. This isn't some young couple that's struggling. They're trying to decide whether to stay together. These are guys who are going to the scriptures with the wrong motive from the very beginning. Some of you have heard there's no such thing as a bad question. That is a terrible statement. Hard hearts ask bad questions. And as they're going to the scriptures, they're asking bad questions like, how do I get out of this? Not, what is God's will in this? And Jesus says, you've got hard hearts. You've been seeking ways to divorce your wife. And he's saying to these men, stop divorcing your wives. It's meant to be permanent. If the marriage is supposed to exalt the love of Christ, a self-sacrifice and covenant-keeping marriage, God never divorces his people. Some of you know your Bible say, what about that passage in Jeremiah? In Jeremiah chapter 3, he issues a certificate of divorce. But what does he do after that? His heart warms towards them. He keeps pursuing them. He doesn't move on to another people. When they're willing to repent, he takes them back. In the New Testament, Jesus never divorces his people. The church, continually idolatrous, continually adulterous, continually running from him, and he keeps taking them back. He keeps pursuing them like the picture in Hosea of the adulterous woman. This is God's love. That's what he says. Moses never commanded divorce. He allowed it because of your hard hearts. You're asking bad questions. It's meant to be permanent. If it's a picture of Christ exalting love, nothing can come in between the believer and the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, the end of the chapter. Paul says that I'm convinced of this. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither height nor depth, nor present nor future, nor any powers, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So if our love and our marriages is supposed to be a picture of that, then neither kids nor She changed, he changed, they didn't change, I thought that would change, nor emotional situation at work, nor fill in the blank with whatever can come between you and your spouse. Nothing should separate our love. This is a tough teaching. And so the disciples, they get alone with Jesus. After the crowds are gone and after Jesus confronts these hard-hearted Pharisees, it says in verse 10, you read Matthew chapter 19, they say, well, who should be married? Mark chapter 10 and verse 10, they say, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. In verse 11, he answered, and he doubles down. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, the original wife. 
and verse 12. And if she, wait a minute, Jesus is saying that women can divorce their husbands? Jesus is actually elevating the role of women here. If she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And what he's saying here is that God's plan, his dream, his desire, his intention here is that the marriage bond is permanent. But like I said earlier, telling someone that divorce isn't allowed doesn't fix a broken marriage. But there are people probably here that have never heard that divorce is wrong. God hates Malachi. God hates divorce. It was never his plan. However, just like in Deuteronomy chapter 24, he acknowledges that it happens. He doesn't say everything there is to say in this passage. There were people in that audience who had been divorced. Some of them had been divorced, and they didn't want to be divorced. And there are people here today that you find yourself divorced, and that wasn't your choice. And sometimes you hear people say the innocent party. There's no such thing as an innocent party. We're all sinners. But you weren't necessarily the offending party. You weren't the one that caused the divorce. You weren't the one that wanted the divorce in the situation. You were abandoned. Somebody committed adultery. Whatever the scenario was, abuse, physical abuse, the things that happen. Let me tell you this. God knows that. He sees your pain. There are passages that address not every scenario that's ever happened, but that that we live in a broken world where two sinful people come together in a sinful world. And some of you are sinned against. And God can use even your worst pain to bring himself glory. We had a, a leader in our church stand up here four weeks ago, Jim Hendren. He, shared, he told me I could share his story. We talked about it yesterday. And he shared with you that he was in a marriage for 16 years and his wife decided to leave him for a, a non-believer. He didn't mention to you that the non-believer was a friend of his. It was incredibly painful. But in that pro- God's working in him to sanctify him in that process and has also used it in the lives of other people. And God can do that with you. Some of you have been in difficult situations. And you wonder, what does the Bible say? Because this passage doesn't say everything there is to say about marriage and about divorce. And I want to share with you, some of you, most of you, I hope, are in small groups. In the small group study this week, I put in there about seven different views that are evangelical Christian views. And what I mean by that is these are people that are good, godly people that believe the Bible. They believe the Bible is God's word. They believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe that as they come to the scriptures, they're trying to say, what does it say? And it's not always clear. Some things are clear, like that marriage is between one man and one woman. Some things aren't as clear. And so there are a lot of different views about divorce and about remarriage. Let me give you a summary of just three kind of ideas of the main views that, there's a lot of views out there that aren't Christian, but the three main views of evangelical Christians. The first one is this, divorce and remarriage, never okay. That's the most conservative of all the views. And there's another view that is marriage or divorce is allowable in some circumstances, but remarriage is never okay. The third one is divorce is allowable in some circumstances and remarriage is allowable in some circumstances. The main passages people will go to, if you want to study this on your own, I put them in the small group study, but the main reasons why people think divorce is allowable is because of adultery, which I mentioned the passage already in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus taught that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 19 also mentions that. Another reason why people will believe that divorce is allowable, never commanded, allowable, permissible, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it talks about a believer being married to a non-believer. And says the believer, if the non-believer will stay in the marriage, stay married to them. But if they take off on you, if they abandon you, you're no longer bound. And many people take that phrase, no longer bound, to mean now you're free to remarry. And another view is that if a divorce happened prior to you being a believer in Jesus Christ, and people base that on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says that you're a new creation, that the old is gone. And so you get a new beginning. And so you didn't know. You didn't, obviously, you didn't know these things to be true. You didn't even know Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're a new person. And so some of you, that has happened to you. God knows that. He makes provision for that in the Scripture. He realizes that. He sees your pain. And I will say to you, as your pastor, I'm sorry. And some of you are the offending spouse. Some of you in here have committed adultery. Some of you have abandoned your spouse. Some of you are involved in marriages, unbiblical remarriages. God's plan for you is not that you break that marriage and start doing something else. Start today. God's mercy is new every day. Start today with what you now know to be true and doing and being obedient to God in that marriage. Your sin is not bigger than the cross. Whether it was adultery, abandonment, something from a past marriage, something that's happening in your current marriage, God's grace is big enough for you. Adultery, abandonment, unbiblical remarriage are not the unforgivable sin. 
The unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus Christ. And if you've done that, I don't care about your marriage because you're going to hell. I want you to trust Christ. If you've trusted Christ, you're in Christ. I don't know what just happened there. You're, you're a new creation. God's doing a work. He wants to do a work in you. There have been mistakes. There's been mess up. And if God still has you here and you are breathing, he still has a plan for you. And your sin's not too big for him. I'm not saying there's not consequences. I'm not saying other people weren't hurt. And I know that divorce is an emotional topic. I'm not saying it's all okay what you did. There are consequences. But Jesus died for that. He can restore that. He can use even that. And desires to still use you or you wouldn't be here. And God's plan for marriage is that it would be a picture of Christ's self-sacrificing, covenant-keeping love that's seen through intimacy, that's seen through permanency, but he can work even when things are broken because we're all messed up. And God's grace is sufficient. Amen? And what we're going to do as we end today is I've asked some, a couple of our elders and a couple of the guys on our leadership team and a couple of women that are trusted women in our church to come and, and just be prayer uh, people that are here. And if you want somebody to pray with you, I invite you to step out and come forward. I'm not going to come up here five times and sing just as I am and you've got to get down here, but you want somebody to pray for your marriage? It doesn't matter if things are great. In your, some of you are newly married and you can't even think of the day when you're going to get in an argument. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that, honey? Do you remember what that was like? And some of you, Maybe you're just hanging on by a string. You're thinking about getting a divorce, and I hope that something I said today will change your mind. And you want somebody—you want somebody just to pray with you. You don't even have to tell them your story. You just come down here and say, "Do you just pray for my marriage? Pray for this." We'd love for you to do that. If maybe some of you are single, you're not sure if you have the gift of singleness or what God's plan is for you. You want to come down here and just have somebody pray for you. Uh, you're invited to do that. And so the worship team's going to come. I'm going to pray for us right now. And the moment we stand together, if you'd like to come down and pray, uh, there will be people here to receive you and would love to pray with you. Father God, I come before you and I pray, God, that you would make marriages in our church strong. I pray they'd be radically different than the marriages that we oftentimes see in the world. Oftentimes the standard is just that people stay together. And God, there are so many of us that are in marriages that are less than what you desire for them to be. I pray, God, that you would not allow us to not talk about this tonight. People that are going to share a bed together, that they would lay down and at least ask the question, is our marriage what God intends? To their spouse. Father, speak to our hearts. I pray for those that have been divorced. You bring healing. I pray for those that have experienced radical reconciliation. I pray you give them boldness to share that with others, that other people would be spurred on. Father, I pray for those that uh, have made terrible mistakes, that you would just allow, allow them to see your grace and to know that your grace is sufficient and your, their weaknesses and their sin, that even in that you're made known. You made yourself so glorified through the greatest sin that ever happened, that people killed your son that we could be reconciled to you. You can do something in this. I don't know what, show us what. Show us how. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.